Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Soul of the Cello" by Maria Morawski, first published in Strange Stories, December 1939. This is uh, maybe the fourth. Maria Morofsky we've been doing on this podcast. Um, I, I I keep thinking about why I like her stories, and I, I, I still can't quite pin it down. I mean, I know the all the, the content. Um, I, I was thinking maybe it was like, in this story, it was a little clearer to me. Um, it's almost like she is alone, and she's writing these stories... For a way to communicate with other like-minded people, but she's not broadcasting that idea. That's just how it feels. And I, I don't know if that fits particularly with this, but there's a few little touches here and there that is like, this is just, it, there's something different about it than there is about a lot of the other weird fiction authors like Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and... She she feels more isolated, um, and she's doing her own thing, and yet it's sort of the same thing as what they're doing. It just feels more isolated, though. Do you get any of that feeling? I'm I, I'm not sure what you mean. I do. Do you mean that you feel that that the the writer behind this story is isolated from a community of mm-hmm. writers? Yeah, I do. Like uh, I was thinking about. She's an immigrant to the United States. Her characters are often immigrants to the United States. Um, when they're not, they're isolated people. Um, you know, they're little boys whose parents are dead, right? Uh, adopted children. Um, they don't have brothers and sisters, right? I don't know. I don't know what exactly it is, but. Um, I feel like that's true. And being like, uh, you know, English not your first language. Um, you're writing to a community for a community of readers, um, and yet I don't think it's like she's putting that in there. I think it's just coming through. The story is one of an individual who, as a boy, uh, is a musical prodigy. He goes to an exhibition of powerful musical instruments, uh, artistic in their look and uh, presumably famous in the sounds they produce, although the collection is owned by someone who is not himself a musician, just a millionaire, an old man with a, I don't know how old he is, he's considered old by the the, uh, the the boy, the 18-year-old, uh, who has the crucial encounter with him. But he he's described as having a paunch, this millionaire. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, youth and uh, at least advanced middle age here. But the youth is a child prodigy with music. The man who doesn't play the cello at all is the one who owns it. And the story has to do with... Uh, wanting to have this cello for reasons that we can discuss once we've gotten past the bare plot uh, that he claims that is the the narrator who is now the grown-up now bald 
um, fellow who looks back on what he did at the age of 18. Um, he claims that he wanted this cello because he wanted to make it have music that would be heard by thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not now whether or not we can trust him is another matter, but it's not that that he's saying I want this cello so that I can make it make music or so that I can hear the music that it makes. He says he wants this cello so that he can make it make music that will be heard by thousands. Uh, It seems to me that what you're saying about Morofsky as an immigrant who's writing not in her native Russian, but in fact in English, Mm -hmm. uh, like this fellow who is telling a story in English, although he also is an immigrant from Russia. And there are a couple of places in the story where he says that his English still is not entirely fluent, despite his many years of residence here. Uh, Morofsky, as a writer, more generally artist, has made a story which thousands can hear and be moved by. And so there's a parallelism between our understanding of the biography of the human being behind this story and the events of the protagonist within the story. So to the extent that, at least in this story, we have a feeling of isolation, which in this case comes from the fact of being an immigrant, the fact of being in a a second language community, and in addition, poverty. Um, Morofsky always had to make her way by her pen mm-hmm. and never made it enormously successfully. We have here just what you're talking about. Um, I don't know. I'd not thought of this before, Jesse. I don't know if this sense of being isolated and so on is inherent in all of Morovsky's work, but in some of them, like the spider woman, mm-hmm. um, clearly it's a woman alone, an immigrant trying to find a way of inserting her creations into popular culture and make scrape out a, a living in doing it. Um, in that regard, I think those two stories are parallel and they bear out your sense that um, we're peering into a sense of, of isolation, uh, someone trying to use art to fit into a culture that she's actually better than. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I hadn't thought of it uh, as yet you're pointing out that the character wants to be heard by thousands. Um, and she's got, it's weird. I'm calling her her now, right? <laughs> he wants to be, he wants to be heard by thousands. He, he's trapped alone at home and he's, he can't play except when his parents are out because he's stolen this cello. Um, and the resolution is to return it. Um, if you, if you look at it a certain way, this is, not a weird fiction story at all. Um, it's just a story of a person who is like a mimetic fiction story, right? But the fact that uh, he says that the cello spoke to him in a way that uh, we don't mean just metaphorically or 
hyperbolically. Um, <laughs> it really speaks to me, Eric. This story speaks yes. to me. <laughs> like the the cello sometimes plays music without him touching it, um, and sometimes when he touches it, it will refuse to play music. Um, and or so he says. That's so why I said absolutely. we or have so to decide whether or not we accept his reliability. It's interesting to think about how the ending works with compared to the beginning. Um, it has a frame like a lot of uh, weird fiction stories do, you know, uh, told in the first person. And this is a story that happened to me a long time ago, right? I'm going to read the first uh, couple of sentences or the first paragraph here. A tall, stooping lad of 18 with a sallow face and burning black eyes. That was my picture in early youth. The sordid poverty of the New York East Side, the burning desire to possess a cello fit for a concert. These were the circumstances which created a crime. It's a good hook, right? Um, But we never come back to... What happened after the end, the end paragraph, is You are a genius, my boy. I'll see to it that thousands of people hear you and your cello. Um, And so we get a happy ending. Um, Presumably, he had that happen to him, right? But what is the context for for us receiving this story? Why are we being narrated this story by the narrator who is giving us a story of his youth? Um, is he passing this cello on to somebody else? Is he telling, you know, I don't think so. There's no evidence for that. In fact, the relationship that the narrator has to the cello is incredibly weird uh, if you look at it closely because he sleeps with it right he yes the description of of how i'll just it like being feverishly in love i'm going to just read some of these this is on the second page and then i met that adorable instrument i cannot talk about it in terms of an inanimate thing that is why i say met as if it were a human being, for I believe to this very day that my cello has a soul. Um, okay. <laughs> He's just a crazy guy, right? But uh, 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 this is on page 58 in the second column. Um, he, I'll just read a couple of paragraphs here. When I came home, my parents were out. I found a note telling me that they had gone to a wedding and asking me to join them. But what did I care for any earthly wedding? That's an interesting line. I we- I wedded to my art with that marvelous, priceless, sweet-voiced cello. I sat in my cubicle of a room and played it with a self-abandon. Never had I heard such m- melodies coming from a man-made thing. I imagined angels in heaven praising Jehovah with the instrument like this. And then this is a part I've got all start up and stuff the cello sang with a voice that was almost human it mourned my starved youth it rejoiced in my ambitions it was tender compassionate understanding it soothed it inspired it was a solace and a challenge and then this is uh, amazing it was a he cello a thing with a soul i loved it my feeling of guilt only intensified my passion. I felt like a man having a secret love affair, but I could not imagine any lover more desirable 
than my cello. Uh, that's a pretty intense relationship with your musical instrument, dude. Um, and, and the fact that he he steals it, um, it it resists. It calls out right as if it's being stolen. It resists. It re- rejects him at times. Uh, and, and the narrator is a male, so a he cello. Uh, when I, when I think of all the times cellos show up in popular uh, culture, you know, often they'll say things like it, it's shaped like a woman, right? It's got that. Uh, I don't know how they. It's the hourglass shape, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they they have the voice of you know violins are high pitched and cellos are sort of deeper, but um, they have a voice absolutely. So there's all sorts of stuff going on in here. Uh, he calls it the sweet voiced one many times. Uh, this is one of the things I love about Morawski is her her repetition when she here's here's an example. Um, on page 59 i looked the instrument over once more not a crack not a slit its surface gleamed darkly like a polished stone like an unbroken sheet of calm water yet it was mute mute (laughs) that repetition uh she's doing something here and making weaving a spell that almost feels like a true story like why why are you telling us this story because it really happened to me and she just sort of tweaked up the um she tweaked up the uh the weirdness made the sort of the 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 hyperbolic feelings actually real uh within the context of the story and that so that question is whether how much of this should we believe um i think we should believe all of it (laughs) what do you think i I do too I, i i'd like to uh to try to answer the question about why this story is being told. And uh, it it takes a couple of moves to do that, Mm -hmm. but then it will connect with what we began with, the the issue you began with about the sense of isolation, if I may. Mm -hmm. Um, The cello is, of course, with its hourglass figure and its slots in the front, um, easy to imagine as female. Mm Um, You hold it between your legs when you play it so that your privates are at a level with the the thing itself, Mm -hmm. the thing itself. Well, you could spin it around so it's the front, but you you do it from the back. Um, And if you think of doing it from the back, um, then instead of thinking of it as a heterosexual uh, passion, one could think of it as a homosexual passion. Mm-hmm. When it's called a he cello, it is homoerotic. Uh, the thing is that it is deeply a matter of love. The love begins by looking like a love for a female. It then is begins to sound like a love for a male. Indeed, when he says, never had there been so sweet a song, from a man-made thing, one can easily imagine this as masturbation. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's and, you know, he says, my hand jerked at the strings of the instrument and I went cold all over. Um, yeah, how foolish it was for me to take it to bed with me. Um, had I broken the delicate satin-like wood? Uh, you know, exactly what kind of taboo, what kind of hymen is being um, disrupted here? In the very next paragraph, I examined the cello carefully, tenderly, as a mother would a child. Mm. No, it was intact. 
not a scratch on its polished surface. Later in the story, it's the other way around. The voice of the cello comforts him Mm -hmm. as if it were a parent. So I think what we have in this story is uh, the narrator thinking of the cello as uh, utterly consuming. When he runs across Manhattan and tries to make himself look presentable. I mean, all he has is a store-bought, ready-made suit, and he's going to a millionaire's house where there's a public exhibition of half a dozen of these Mm -hmm. beautiful instruments. Um, It's like uh, a a youngster. He's just 18, wishing that he could have something so wonderful. And then when he sees it, it's love at first sight. And that love begins to expand It's not just heterosexual love. It becomes homosexual love. It becomes filial love. It becomes parental love. But all of those roles have to do with a fundamentally sexual connection. There's nobody, well, putting adoption aside, people become parents and children because of sex, Mm -hmm. just as people become lovers, either homosexual or heterosexual, because of sex. There is something sweet and gorgeous here. And if the cello refuses to sing under the ministrations of his hands, that suggests that they are not quite in accord. And why? Because it's a crime. Now, we're told that he is called Misha, that that is the name that was used for him when he was a boy, and because he was so well known by that name as a musical prodigy, it has stayed with him even until now when he is old and bald. I'll tell you, the first time I read this story, Jesse, I thought that he was poor, because we're told how isolated he was, how little money there was, how every penny had to be um, accounted for, and he speaks with such sadness that it seems as if he must have been poor his whole life. But when we get to the end, and he, that is the narrator, is is um, challenged by the man who owns the cello. He goes to return the cello, and he's challenged by him to play, and he plays, and he plays gorgeously. It was his spirit, the spirit of the maker of the cello, mm-hmm. back in Venice, Right. It was his spirit proudly demanding to be heard. So our fellow becomes the conduit through which the very creation of this cello speaks to the world. It was his pride in his instrument, which craved expression under my obedient fingers. So now instead of being a criminal, he's returned the cello. He's learned to accept his role as the carrier on of a tradition. I understood it now. He wanted me to bring his cello back so that it could be heard by all the world, like Moravsky's stories. After a long silence, when the last echo of The Soul of Venice, the piece that, that our narrator is playing, departed into eternity, with a capital E, my host spoke, you are a genius, my boy. Mm. And now, my boy could just be a simple phrase, but it also suggests a kind of paternal um, helpfulness here. I'm, I'm going to, you are my protege now. Right? You, are, you are a genius, my boy. I'll see to it that thousands of people hear you and your cello. So suddenly at the end, we come to realize 
that this crime has been rewarded by having lifelong access to this incredible cello. Hence, I ask myself, why this tone of poverty and loneliness throughout the whole story? That's that's where you began for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he tells us that he has kept this diminutive, this nickname, Misha, right? Short for, you know, a a, a, a nickname for Michael. Uh, He's kept this nickname. He's been known by this his whole life. So Misha at 18 became famous, must have been, as a cellist, and he continued to be famous. But now he cannot play the cello as he once could. So he begins as a boy, diminished, and he ends as a man, diminished. It was only in his prime that he could play that cello. This story is to recall the possible, the, the great moment of promise when he gets the cello. Now, I'd like to point something out. This this story was published in nineteen thirty-nine, mm-hmm. when Maria Morovsky was still living in Florida, maybe not having much of a relationship with her husband, um, maybe not with him anymore. But I'm guessing that at 49, which was her age then, she was into or had gone through menopause. That's likely. So the story we have here is of someone remembering his youth when he was still unconnected to the great love of his life, be it heterosexual, homosexual, parental, filial. Then he came to have this great love, but he is now past it. So Misha, Misha, young and old Misha, is this story. There was this moment, this this lifetime when I was connected, just as the cello was connected over 300 years back to its maker in Venice. But time goes by. We see Venice for its canals and the water flowing and the boats going down. And Maria Morovsky has that same feeling of once having had a promise of youth. But now at 49, she's alone in a foreign country and trying to remind herself that she had had the power to be heard by thousands. And she's trying to retain that power by writing this story. And Misha is trying to retain that power by making of his experience a powerful story. Does that sort of bring those together in a way that makes some sense? Absolutely. Um, I I, I like that you point out that, yeah, it's it's still Misha, even though he's old and, and presumably stooped. Um, the first line is a tall stooping lad, right? Uh, now he's an old stooping lad uh, yeah. at the end of the story. Um, there is a, a kind of promise um, uh, I, that I see in a lot of her stuff. I mean, all the stuff we've read, right? Um, there's this artist. There's this uh, kid with a vision. There's always somebody who is... I don't know if the relationship with the parents is always there, but there's always that that promise of youth. And 
Um, it's interesting the details were given here, like what what we're given, what we're not. His parents have no names. Misha is the only name we get for him. We never learn the name of the artist who created this cello. We don't learn the name of the owner of the cello uh, that he stole it from. We get the name of the streets in New York. We get uh, a, a few things like that. Um, but we do get uh, a, a number of details about his life. Um, his his uh, bedroom being quite small, but uh, this is on page 59 at the top. My father kept a second-hand book sh- bookstore. I mean, he sold second-hand books there. My English is still wobbly in spite of my many years' residence in the States. Um, I understood that first sentence. My father kept a second-hand bookstore. What's, what's hard to understand there? Well, she refines it. She said, or he refines it. <laughs> I, I mean, he sold secondhand books there. I don't see the difference. My English is still wobbly in spite of my many years' residence in the States. And then, it is because my chief means of expression is music. And I don't know if this is Maria Murawski saying that, you know, because I read some of her sentences and I think, oh, that's oddly phrased. There's no grammar mistakes generally. Right, it's just oddly phrased, um, and then uh, she gives more details about like who he, who the family is, or, or he gives more details and says, "But I could not express myself all alone. Every artist needs an audience. I could not think of playing on the cheap new cello I had used before I got the sweet voiced one, for that is what I called it to myself in Russian. My people." were the educated kind of Hebrews. They belong to the Russian intelligentsia. Why is this in here? Well, I think one of the reasons that it's in there is that just as um, Misha and Maria Morawski were immigrants in the United States in minority positions, so were the Hebrews back in Russia. So Misha was congenitally um, marginalized, and then there's this a connection to uh, uh, which we haven't really discussed at all. This connection to Venice, it, it it's so striking to me. This, this almost same thing exact happens in our last Maria Marovsky story um, with a painting and uh, uh, a curious experience is looking into it. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that one called? Beyond the Frame, that's it. So in Beyond the Frame, uh, we have a librarian who is looking out uh, at a, a, a lit city at night, and in the glass reflected, um, she sees not just the city through it, but the tapestry behind her. And that tapestry shows a particular image, and then she goes into the, into the image. That almost exact same thing happens here, except it's, uh, through the music and into the cello. And in the illustration, they actually use the cello as a way to illustrate that. I thought that was quite quite well done in the illustration. But um, we get a whole vision of, of the city of Venice. Um, and it's all conveyed through the sound. So we get the sense that there is no actual picture necessarily being generated. Um, it... it, it in the, that is, we could question whether um, it was. We did a story not that long ago um, by Olaf Stapleton called "The World of Sound," mm-hmm. 
and it has a sort of similar phenomena. I'm just going to read this section. Um, it's on page 60, starting with I Heard. I heard the words with my soul rather than with my ears. The music continued to flow with them as if they were just a motive, a musical motive, and not the harsh words. I made it. You stole it. You must return it. It was like a song, the cruel meaning softened by the melody. It was like a hypnotizing admonition. I had to heed it. Take this last look at my beautiful city. This cello can conjure the spirit of that city, the spirit of Venice. And the title of the story is The spirit, the Soul of the Cello and the Spirit of Venice. This is a Russian immigrant, right, born in Serbia or whatever, um, moved to the United States, goes to Florida. She's making a living, kind of, writing uh, pulp magazine stories and connecting with not just... Uh, the people around her in Hollywood or wherever she is, but also with art in a way that it seems like not everybody else is really into either. And maybe that's also the isolation, is that other people at that party, the stag party that we see at the end of the story or at the at the showing off of the cellos party at the beginning, they don't connect in the way that the narrator does. She does. And in reading it, I feel like I'm connecting to those things, even though I'm not really musical, right? Uh, uh, uh. That's a powerful writing. It is powerful writing. I think one of the reasons that even knowing that it has a supposedly happy ending, you know, it's your cello, mm -hmm. um, that it feels so sad, is that this is written after the fact. Yes, Right. It, yes, it's your cello, but you can no longer bring forth this music. The soul of it, you know, maybe thousands heard it, but it's over now. And you ask, why does he write this? Um, that is, why is the narrator speaking at this moment? Because I think at this moment, the narrator is realizing, as you did, that he was stooped and he is stooped. Mm. And the the square-shouldered genius who could go through the world and even attract the admiration of millionaires um, is gone. In fact, the maker of the cello is gone. All that lasts, all that can continue to have um, ennobling activity in this world is the soul of the cello not the soul of the maker, not the soul of the musician. We leave things behind us, but we go. This is a not just a happy ending, it's a bittersweet ending. Mm -hmm. And I can easily see Maria Morawski wondering, as she finishes writing this story, and how will I live tomorrow? <laughs> yep. And, of course, what she does is write another story because there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash 
SFF Audio.